What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe, and we'd like to say welcome to everyone who's joined us today. We're so grateful for you to be here with us. We've got another jam-packed adventure with an amazing, amazing interview. But before we dive in, as always, we'd like to thank all of our supporters and patrons out there who are making this podcast possible. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and learn about all the amazing benefits you get by being a supporter of the show. And if you would like to learn more about the Bestseller Academy, where you will get Mark and I as coaches in craft coaching and life coaching, pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mr. Stay, how are you, sir? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. It's, uh, I've been running um, a reader survey this week. This has been on my to-do list for about a year, uh, and I've just got around to it. And I'm I'm um, I'm using uh, I'm not because I've used things like Survey Monkey before, but they're horribly expensive. Uh, so I've I've been a cheapskate. I'm going with Google Forms, which is really good and very secure, very secure. You know, and it's all all good stuff. Yeah, uh, I've had some help from. I just want to give a shout out to Raquel, who I know listens to the podcast. She's with a writers group I I meet up with in Canterbury, and she gave me some very good advice on on surveys and i i know she's listening she's up to about episode 35 so this is going to freak her out in about three years time um (laughs) 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 yes and i i sort of got the bxp team on facebook to run through its guinea pigs and they found all sorts of little problems with it so that was very helpful too but it's out there now and i'm hearing back from my readers and it's brilliant you learn so much about them. It's not fin- It will have finished by the time this episode goes out, but, but when we're recording, it's still a few days to go. And already I'm learning so much about them, what kind of social media they use, what other authors they like, what formats they prefer to read in. And it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And it is something I'd like to do at least once a year, and especially now I've got this set up. You know, so um, now it's been really, really eye-opening. Really eye-opening. I think it's fascinating, isn't it? From a guy that did a degree in marketing and statistics and uh, various bits, I'm a big fan of research, and I think that it's it's one of those things. As an author, it's very hard to to do something like this because it feels like such a luxury, or it feels mm-hmm. like such a low, you know, in quotes, a low priority because there's so many other urgent things that need to be done. Yeah. But it's probably the one most important thing any author can do. Mm. Because I think one of the challenges with, say, Amazon is that you don't get to 
you know, you don't automatically get to, to, to know all your readers because Amazon kind of holds on to that information. Mm-hmm. So when you build your own mail, I mean, you have to build your own mailing list as well before you can even yeah. do the survey. So there's all these things that prevent people from getting to what I think this is like the holy grail of, of research for authors. But yeah. like you say, I, I see a lot of successful authors. We've talked to a few on the show, haven't we, who, who do this as an annual event and, it, it just means you don't have to second guess things anymore. It means that you, and you might learn, and every author's group of readers are unique. No mm. one author is going to get exactly the same results on every single question. And so understanding that uniqueness of your of your reader base helps you as an author, not just to write, write better books, but also know how to best market your books to them, what they would most like from you um, in terms of like, um, you know, bonuses and things like that. So I think it's absolutely fantastic. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. First thing, first thing I'm doing with this is, you know, sending it to my publisher just to say, look, this is where my readers are. This is where, you know, and uh, go from there. So, you know, this is just in time for book three, which is coming in July. So hopefully it'll help us, you know, Get more readers, find out where they hang out and find more of them and, and sell more books, hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. Well well no, it can own it can absolutely only help. Absolutely. Mm. I mean there's 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 nothing you don't gain by getting that information. Mm. Ironically, back in the day, that's kind of what publishers were meant to do. It's kind of interesting how the authors yeah. here's the server I did with my but then saying that, back in the day, before we had email lists even, like how would what did what did publishers used to do to 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 find out, fight to it was the little slip in the book, wasn't it, or nothing? They, they didn't. They didn't, <laughs> Mister D. This is the, this is the ridiculous thing. They didn't do anything. They, it was all based on assumptions. I mean, the, I, I've I've mentioned this before, but the number of um, you know meetings where they say it's women's contemporary fiction, and they'll say, yeah, and this is a book for all women aged thirty-five to forty-five. What are you basing that on? What an all women really, really, you know. So it was, and we did um, Hachette uh, to their credit uh, about six, seven years ago. Did hire episode one, episode. You remember episode one of the podcast? You know, we uh, and I've forgotten her name. This is really embarrassing. Let's go, uh, Vix Tranter. That was it. Vix. Vix remember yeah. we had Vix on the show. Yeah. They hired Vix to do exactly this. Um, and then they made a redundant a couple of years later. So it was like they dipped their toe into it and haven't really followed up on it. And I think this is where Amazon and people like that do have the advantage on a lot of publishers because they publishers don't do this stuff. They don't market test. You know, Persil won't put out a new packet of uh, soap powder without, you know, thoroughly testing it and getting people to give them comments and feedbacks, whereas well, my, publishers do it all the time. My sister worked in Mars back in the day, and I used to, whenever I went around her house, she had a big bowl of chocolate bars with silver <laughs> wrappers on. It was brilliant. And she'd say, oh, I bought home some, you know, we're testing these things. I've got a little form here. And there was no branding on it. They were just new chocolate bars that Mars were playing with. And we got to sit around the table trying out these chocolate bars. And it was brilliant. I loved it. But at the same time, Mars were going to get some very great and free feedback from people to say this one's great, didn't like this one. And I mean, it's it's, it's a question of resources. You know, the the big brands have the money to do it that maybe publishers don't perhaps but i don't know i mean it's a shame that hachette sort of dipped a toe into it i know other publishers have dipped toes into it but when the crunch came they were the first people who were let go and i do think you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot there because um you know you you 
you can't make these assumptions. You've got to find out where these, you know, where the readers live. So, you know, I'm doing this in order to, you know, help. I know how up against it traditional publishers are. Most people there, you know, in the marketing department, one person there is doing the job that five people did about five years ago. They, they are really up against it. So if I can do anything to make their job a bit easier and help sell a few more of my books, I will. Uh, so, yeah, it's... um. I mean, you know, if you're a publisher and I'm completely wrong about this, come and tell us. We'll do a lovely deep dive about it. But uh, yeah. I, you know, it's 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 kind of crazy they don't do more of this. Yeah, and I think actually, I think when we're talking about maybe kind of the traditional publishers who've been around for many many years, I mm-hmm. think a lot of new publishers that and maybe they're purely publishers that work online as well. They're they're digital publishers yeah. in a sense, and they'll be using all of the data that they can get their hands on just like a lot of the the big the big data companies do and mm. there's probably some really amazing incredible advances in terms of understanding readers that's going on that's um, maybe not that obvious behind you know in front of what we're seeing so yeah if you're if you're part of one of those if you feel you're at the cutting edge of i mean which author in the world that's this is the question i have for anyone out there which author in the world knows their readers the most and how do they know that you know it's like um, does Stephen King know his readers? Probably not, because um, as a traditional, traditionally published author, he just writes his books and he knows mm. that what he writes will sell because <laughs> he's yeah. Stephen King. But for everyone else, it's like any anything that can give you. And you know what it is? It's always those extra little percentage differences. There's a fascinating um, story about the, the British Olympic cycling team when they had 80 years of no success whatsoever. And they brought in a chap who basically started looking at tweaking tiny things, tiny Mm -hmm. things like the material they used on the, um, on the seats of the bikes and even the massage oil that they used after (laughs) they'd done training that gave them a faster recovery. I mean, tiny things, but he did so many of these tiny tweaks that what happened? Well, we all know, like in the, was it was in the 2010 Olympics, like Britain won pretty much every single gold medal there was in the- 2012. 2012, sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Every <laughs> single gold medal in the Olympics and then yeah. had Tour de France winners and yeah. and they attribute it not to some massive change that somebody did, like they, they, they re- reorganized everything. It was all these tiny tweaks. And so when you get your results, Mark, from that survey and you go, well, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Even if it's a tiny tweak that you make in how you how you market your books or you know what what you learn about that will can make massive differences like exponentially mm. massive differences. So that's what we're talking about. That's really exciting, absolutely mm. exciting. Yeah, good stuff. Good luck with that. I'd be interested to hear what you what you learn as well as yeah, you get yeah. your results. Yeah, in. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, talking of a learning process, we've we've got um, something big happening, which we're going to be talking about next week. Andrew Chapman is about to attempt at the time of writing or speaking, we should say, uh, his 50,000 words in a day experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this will have happened by the time this episode goes out. So uh, Andrew Chapman, long-time supporter of the podcast, uh, he's writing a 50,000-word novel, The Mask Collector, on one day, which is tomorrow, his birthday, uh, which is Thursday, the 12th of May. He starts at 9 a.m. UK time. He finishes at 9 a.m. Friday the 13th. So it's already happened 
by the time this goes out. So, Mr. D, do we record two messages sort of, yay, you did it, or, oh, no, his hands <laughs> fell off? What, I what think, do we do? I think we, just, I think we just record and we document, as we do in all our experiments, what actually happens. And, and I think celebrate either way, because I, as I always yeah. say, experimenting, it's not about success or f- the success or failure. It's about the trying. It's about the fact that you did yeah. it because you learn more f- by doing it than not doing it at all. And Absolutely. I'm curious as to what Andrew learns through the process. And that's what I'm going to be interested in, in, in finding out because mm. I think that's of use to other people. Uh, he'll either say, I'm never going to do this again. Or he said, <laughs> or I'm, or I'm going to do this once a week and, and write 52 books a year. I mean, who knows, <laughs> Don't <right>? give him <laughs> ideas. <laughs> but why did you, Andrew, why did you choose to do it on your birthday? I guess in some ways, if you, if you did it the day before your birthday, you'd probably be asleep on your birthday. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then probably if you did it the day after your birthday, you'd be so nervous about whether you're going to do it or not. You wouldn't enjoy your birthday. So yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. best of yeah. luck, Andrew. We're, we're rooting you on and we can't we wait are. to hear how it goes. Fantastic stuff. Now, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have a wonderful interview today. So, Mark, tell us more about our amazing, amazing guest this week. Well, Simon McCleave. Now, you may recall, Mr. D, we asked our listeners to nominate authors they would like to come onto the podcast. Well, Simon McCleave was one of the first names on the list. Uh, Simon is a million-selling British crime novelist. His first book, The Snowdonia Killings, uh, was released in January 2020 and hit number one on the Amazon UK chart and sold over 200,000 copies. His seven subsequent novels in the D.I. Ruth Hunter series have all ranked in the Amazon top 20 or big bestsellers. But he's just signed a deal with HarperCollins. He's gone traditional to write a new crime series based on the Isle of Anglesey. And it starts with book one, The Dark Tide. Now, Simon uh, has is steeped in story. He was a script editor at The Beeb. He was a producer at Channel 4. He's worked as a story analyst in LA. He's written for shows like Silent Witness, Teachers, Attachments, The Bill, EastEnders, many, many more. So we discuss the importance of location in fiction, what he learned from working as a script editor, and why he's briefly shifted over from indie publishing to writing for a traditional publisher. Fantastic stuff. Well, let's listen in as Mark chats with the prolific Simon McCleave. Simon McCleave, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very well. I'm in North Wales. It's very sunny and warm, so all is good in the world. Splendid stuff. Uh, We've got so much to talk about today. Uh, that this is yours is an extraordinary story and I think really inspirational stuff. Um, but you have a new book coming. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about The Dark Tide, which is the first of the DCI Laura Hart series. Tell us about The Dark Tide. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a new series set in Anglesey, um, which is a, an island just off the coast of North Wales. Uh, and um, Laura Hart is, uh, she was the chief negotiator for the, uh, for the Manchester police. Um, and uh, three years ago, something terrible happened. Her husband died and she has relocated. She's left the police and relocated to Anglesey with her two children to try and kind of pick up the pieces of her life. Um, and then something happens. There's a, a hostage situation in Anglesey and the local police ask her, can she help? And of course, she's um, she's reluctant to go back to her old life until she discovers that her son is part of the hostage situation. And now she has the dilemma of going back and, and saving her son. And she has no real choice then. And uh, so she goes to help the, the local police with... Um, 
basically one of the tourist ferries off of Beaumaris has been taken hostage by some guys that were delivering drugs. So, uh, yeah, it's like that. It's kind of, it's kind of epic action adventure. It's, it's all going on there. So Excellent. High stakes, good dilemma, all good stuff. And the location is important as well. We find this a lot with uh, crime authors. They tend to, particularly UK crime authors, they'll pick a corner of the UK that hasn't been done before and lay claim to it. And you've laid claim to the beautiful Isle of Anglesey in Wales, um, which is an incredible part of the world, folks. Uh, We had a, a listener question from Christopher Wills who said, isn't there a danger that you might if this is an ongoing series, isn't there a danger you might run out of people to bump off? Because it's not not a big place, is it? Well, I've always well, I, I have a whole I have a whole series set in Snowdonia, and I thought that might be a problem. I'm on book twelve of that, so <laughs> there's always there's always crime to be found. Um, but yeah, I, I, I take I take his point, but uh, um, we will stretch reality a little bit on Anglesey. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Tell uh, you're quite local to Anglesey, aren't you? Tell tell us why you chose that as a as a location. Um, the whole North Wales region and Anglesey has been really important to me. I'm actually a, a South Londoner in exile, so um, <laughs> but I've it's the I think it's the landscape up here. The landscape has got everything. Is we've got the mountain, you've got Snowdonia Mountains. So from Anglesey, as you look south you can see snowdon and you can see the snowdon the range of snowdonia mountains um and it's got lakes and it's got beaches and it's got i mean it's just staggeringly beautiful but it's also kind of you know in sort of more inclement weather it's very foreboding it's got mm-hmm. that kind of ominous feel to it and fog rolls in um and you've kind of got all the you know obviously the romans invaded this place uh, we have king arthur up in sort of north wales uh, plus the kind of Welsh druids and all those sort of Celtic tales. So it's got so much going on. Um, and uh, when I first started writing about North Wales and Anglesey, I sort of, I wondered if it was still a blank canvas, but as far as I could see, as you said, no one had, <laughs> no one, I, I thought it was amazing that no one had actually written a detective series up here because it's got so much going on. Um, but yeah, the, the landscape and that area becomes a kind of a character in its own right. Mm. We visited there a few years ago, and I remember I was there with my and I write fantasy, and I'm looking around thinking it's Middle Earth. This is actually Middle yeah. Earth. You don't, you don't have to go to New Zealand; it's right here. <laughs> now let's let's talk about you. You briefly mentioned uh, the 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 other series that you have, the Di Ruth Hunter series, um, but this is your story is, is quite astonishing. And we had we put a, a call out to our listeners. Um, for who they'd like to see on the podcast. And Mike Shackle, who a uh, long-term listener of the podcast, he's been on a couple of times as well, and his fantasy trilogy, The Last War, is published by Gollants. He got in touch and he said, full disclosure that I noticed Simon in his books because I recognise his name and realised we went to school together. Um, I, <laughs> I'm glad you remember him. That could have been very embarrassing if he hadn't. Um, but he says, uh, Mike says, but I think his success over the last couple of years really shows what hard work with talent can achieve. He's released something like 16 books in that time, hitting the number one spot, selling bucket loads. His books are on sale in Waterstones, got a TV series in the work, and then he snagged a traditional deal for another series on top of that. I'd be interested in why, after having such great success being an indie, why the interest in going traditional with the new series, and why does he think his books are so addictive? Let, let's unpack that one bit at a time. Mm. There's a lot going on there. but <laughs> I, I, uh, well, I, We're all blown away by this, but I was looking at, Snowdonia Killings, which is the first book 
in the Ruth Hunter series was released in January 2020. It's just over two years ago. Mm. Uh, and since then, you have. You have. You've released 10, as far as I can see, D.I. Ruth Hunter books and four yeah, DC. Yeah, 11, so. <laughs> yes. And there's a 12th on the way. There is a 12th <laughs> on the way. And, and four DC Ruth Hunter novels, which are prequels, and now The Dark Tide. Yeah. That's breathtaking. How on earth have you done that? I know. I think. I mean, I did cheat. A li- I did cheat a little bit. I had sort of two ready to go in January 2020. So, let's say 13 books in two years rather than 15. But still, it's. Oh. I don't know. Um, <laughs> to be fair, actually, I get asked this a lot, and I think it's the my background as a TV writer and a, and a film mm. script writer. Um, and the relentless pace at which working on something like Silent Witness or The Bill or Midsummer Murders, um, the the pace of writing those and turning those around and rewriting those and, and continually rewriting, you just get to write fast. You have to write fast. Mm. And you get to write, you know, scenes with dialogue and characters and plot very, very quickly. Um, and I'm guessing that gave me a you know a, a great background in mm. in writing quickly and writing sort of cop stuff quickly so um yeah i mean i guess i guess once you have your um your your main character and the uh the you know the location set that's your world building that's your world built mm-hmm. isn't it and then mm. you can just have fun telling you know great stories in in that area was that the was that the most difficult part, sort of building that world and, and the character? Um, I don't know. It sort of came it came very organically. I actually, well, I was working as a teacher for a little bit and um, I'd sort of had enough of writing and I wrote the Snowdonia Killings as a bit of a kind of project for myself. I, I read mm. crime books. I thought, I'll give this a go. So I wrote sort of before school or during lunch breaks and thought, you know, I think my mum and dad will probably buy it and, and that's about <laughs> it. Um, and and obviously I haven't looked back since then. So I sort of didn't give it a huge amount of thought. It just became organic. Um, and I suppose because the central character, D.I. Ruth Hunter, is a South Londoner mm. who has moved to Snowdonia for what she perceives should be a quieter life than Peckham, um so and obviously it doesn't turn out that way but she made the same journey as i did and she saw snowdonia and north wales through the eyes of someone who'd brought been brought up in a city so i basically writing is an autobiography in that sense because she got to see in the same way as i do the sort of small town quirks of north wales and the beauty of north wales and community and so i kind of it's uh in that sense it's it's completely autobiographical yeah, I mean, you're taking the right what you know yes. uh, thing to uh, you know. So you're writing in a genre that you've you've worked in extensively in TV. You're using a precinct that you live in, and as a newcomer as well, you're giving us that way into the area and the story as well. Yeah, uh, that's that's fantastic. But the Dark Tide, uh, the the new book is published by Avon. It's a three book deal. Uh, so you've shifted. I mean, you, as you say, you're going to continue with the Ruth Hunter novels as mm. an indie, but you've made the shift over to traditional publishing. What what prompted that? Um, a, I, I, thought I wanted a different experience. I suppose I was flattered that HarperCollins straight Avon had come to my agent and said, please, please, can Simon write us something? Um, and I kind of, <laughs> if someone said that two years ago, I would have laughed in your face, but the idea that they'd come and asked <laughs> was um, was uh, sort of flattered my ego, I suppose. 
But also, I guess it gives me, it's a different experience. So I get to work with very, very good editors, Mm -hmm. which I don't, you know, I don't really have a great deal of editing going on these days. Um, And I can kind of concentrate on the writing rather than all the kind of indie stuff. But it also gives massive access to bookshops, which Mm. uh, as an indie author, it's very, very difficult to get my paperbacks in any sort of meaningful way into any bookshops. Um, And obviously with HarperCollins behind me, it's it's a done deal. You know, it goes into WH Smith's and Waterstones and um, Asda or wherever it might be. Um, And... I knew that 70% of the book buying public in the UK is still only by paperbacks. Mm. So I thought, well, there's 70% of people who've never heard of me, who've never been on Amazon or read an ebook on Kindle. Um, it seemed that um, it seemed like a good idea to kind of go down that route and see if I can kind of open up that market a bit. Mm. Um, and, you know, they've been amazing. They've been amazing to work with. Creatively, they, they've... I, I was warned that it would be difficult, but it wasn't at all. They, the first draft I delivered, they really liked, and it was. Uh, and then I'm going on, you know, like so. For example, they've organised a Waterstones tour of Wales for me to go into there and do signings and stuff. So all that stuff doesn't happen when you're an indie. So mm. I kind of, I suppose, it's opened a, a doors to that I that um, were closed to me before. Yeah, exactly. Of course, the big difference between traditional indie is traditional is that much slower as it is led by retailers, uh, you know, seasonal uh, promotions and what have you. So they're not going to be doing 10 books a year. So I guess this is, you know, you've got the two things running in parallel there. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just finishing off the second Anglesey book, which will be released in January or February of 2023, which for me is just shocking blow. <laughs> um, but it does mean I can put that down and go on to book 12 and book 13 yeah. uh, while they decide what they're doing with it. So, um, and I suppose I write fast enough for those those books, for um, the Anglesey books, not to interrupt too much the flow of Ruth Hunter as well. So, mm. uh and Snowdonia Killings has been optioned. Uh, f- yeah. uh, is is there anything you can tell us about that? <laughs> not not a great deal. There was a very I can tell you that a very famous um, British actress uh, read the Snowdonia Killings on holiday and uh, DM'd me on Instagram to say wow. I've read it. I love it. I need to be Ruth Hunter. I will <laughs> find a producer if it's available. Um, at which point I thought some it was a, a mate taking the you know, <laughs> and going and having a laugh, and then I kind of looked and, and showed people, and they went, "No, I think that's genuine." <laughs> so she sorted it all out. I can't tell you who she is, and I can't tell you any more than the it's being developed. They want to shoot it in 2023 in on location in Snowdonia, um, but. We shall see. Wow. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Let's yeah. go back to where it all started for you, because you, from what I can see, you started out as a script editor in yeah. uh, TV and film, and th- that's all about development, and you're giving feedback to writers. That must have been a terrific education in in writing. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes that thing where um, you're working with writers on on narrative, plot, character, dialogue, you know, day in, day out. And that's all I ever did was that, you know, I sort of came either working on ideas that I'd come up to give to a writer or working with the writer on their ideas. So, yeah, I, I'm guessing that since, you know, for 30 years I've worked in in some capacity on on stuff that's about structure and it's about telling, it's about storytelling, essentially. 
um, good storytelling with good characters and good dialogue. So yeah, that stuff was was incredibly helpful at the beginning. And what, having worked as a script editor, what are the common mistakes made by screenwriters when they're sending stuff into you? What 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 were the things that you learned the most? Um, gosh, that's a good question. Um, pace, I think pace was incredible. Was you know, getting the pace right. Um, st- you would be surprised how many people still write kind of stuff that's quite cliched, and you kind of. You know, um, and also telling the audience something they already know within a scene. I think they're uh, without trusting an audience to read between the lines. Certainly on screen. I mean, obviously, there's a very different, it's a very different kind of um, uh, skill when you're writing because often writing scripts is about what you don't write. Mm-hmm. Someone's having a cup of tea. They're talking about having a cup of tea, and actually, the whole thing is about their divorce, mm-hmm. but they're not talking about it. So, I think for script writers. It's about trusting that your audience will be able to read through the, you know, see through it, and understand the subtext. Um, but the beauty I found was, as a writing novels, is that you can write the subtext. Right. So that's why it's <laughs> nice in some ways. You can go in and say, "Right, do you want a cup of tea?" And then you can write. Actually, you want to stab your wife and whatever it is. <laughs> you can write that stuff that you can't do in scripts. So I, I enjoy that. That sort of internal, the internal dialogue you can write, yeah. which yeah. I didn't used to be able to do. Yeah, but that thing of allowing the audience—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's a bit of Billy Wilder advice that I always remember, which is if you allow the audience to add two plus two, they'll love you forever, and that's the thing that gets yeah, them to lean forward and trusting the audience to uh, come to their own conclusions. And it is—it's something I I see a lot in fiction, you know, for first-time writers as well. You're right. It's that thing of we'll make the point, but we're going to re-emphasize the point just to make sure you got the point, and then we're going to, yeah, yeah. you know, shore it up again. And that's that's how people become disengaged, isn't it? And I think it applies as much to fiction, actually, as it as it as it does to screenwriting. Um, but having having decided to move to writing fiction, was there any hesitancy? Was this, you know? Had you written any novels before? Had you attempted to write novels before, or were these your first attempts? Yeah, I wrote one, you know, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. It was all right, um, but nothing ever happened with it. And in those days, there was no indie publishing, so it was like, you know, my agent looked at it and said it was okay, and she touted it around for a bit. Um, I suppose I was very lucky in that I was working as a teacher. I had no, I didn't have to, I didn't have to leave that job. So in some ways, I wrote it with no pressure. I didn't have to kind of go and make a living by doing it. I wrote it to see if I could write it and actually just enjoy the process because I spend so much time watching crime, reading crime, whatever it is. Um, I thought, I'll just give it a go. And, you know, it's it was a fun thing to do. So I was lucky in that way. I saw um, uh, an interview uh, with your, I think your first editor, Rebecca Miller, um uh, oh yes yes so can how did you find her and how was it working with with her the first time what were the, again what were the big lessons oh, she was, yes she was brilliant she really did hold my hand through <laughs> first few, the first two novels or first three novels um she all the stuff that i brought with me from be, being a screenwriter she managed to kind of get rid of <laughs> and explain actually explain to me and even though i'd read hundreds and if not thousands of books there was certain very kind of simple stuff about point of view and description and all sorts of stuff where she just went, you can't do that. Or it's not, it's, you know, it doesn't really work if you do it like that. Um, and I suppose 
yeah, it was invaluable. She 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 was invaluable in the first two books to sort of um, guide me about how to turn the stories I wanted to tell into proper novels rather than a sort of hybrid of novel stroke screenplay. So point of view, that was was that kind of head-hopping stuff head hopping, within the scene. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you're writing a screenplay, often the point of view that you the point of view is the camera. Yes. So therefore you're writing everything from the director's point of view, the person sitting in the cinema's point of view. In a novel, you're writing the characters from the character's head. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a kind of different when you've written a lot of scripts, it's quite a different shift as to get that as the way that you write scenes. So mm. Let, Hopefully let's, I've got that. Uh, well, uh, you're clearly doing something right, Simon. Um, let's talk about your daily routine. With all these books, clearly you're writing from the very first light until the setting of the the sun. You're 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 you know doing nothing but tapping the keys all day. Or I mean, how have you how have you even got time to speak to me here? What's your what's your daily routine, Simon? Um, try and do three thousand words a day. Right. Just. And I reckon I write about a thousand in about an hour to an hour and a half. Um, that's kind of not polished. That's just sort of off yeah. the bat. Um, and sometimes it'll be like I'll write, you know, I'll do a burst of writing in the morning, burst right in the afternoon, and a burst of writing in the evening, and in between, do other stuff. So um, it's not always sitting down. It'd be difficult to write sit and write down for three, four hours at a stretch. Mm. Um, so it's normally a burst, and then do something else for a for a bit. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, when you put it like that, it's not, you know, I guess four four or five hours a day off and on writing, so mm. Good stuff. too bad. And are you outlining much or are you writing at the, by the seat of your pants? Um, I, you know, I always start with a twist. Okay. So, actually, I know the – I think Peter James once said that he he always has to have a moment where – the audience get to the end of the book and they go, oh, my God, or they swear. Um, <laughs> I never saw that coming. I didn't know it was that person. I mean, they're, they're really difficult to do um, mm. because your audience are always trying to get one step ahead of you and go, ah, oh, I know who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always start with that and work backwards and go, right, and then cover my tracks. So I know from um, page one in, you know, 70,000 words, I've got to get to this point at which the audience still don't actually know that, you know, the whoever, it, Uncle Charlie did it. And um, and they're still utterly shocked at that moment. So my whole job is just to disguise that for 70,000 words, basically. Any, any top tips on how to disguise it, how to how to pull the wool over the eyes of the uh, of the reader? Oh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> I suppose, uh, oh, I don't know. Um Obviously, red herrings are quite nice, but then you you have to be very careful not to like leave smoking guns. So all that kind of stuff has to be tied up. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't know. I think for some reason I just have an innate sense of how to do it, and I right. it just comes. I just do it. I don't know how I do it. Well, you've. I mean, you've you've lived and breathed crime thrillers on TV yeah. and film for you know decades now. So this this that was your education, wasn't it? Really, I guess you just. Yeah, yeah, it's all up there, you know. So, you know, I'll be writing a scene and suddenly it'll be something I saw Martin Scorsese direct about, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago or a, an episode or something. And I remember how that scene went or how that twist worked. And it, I suppose it's all locked up there and sort of mashed up and it all kind of comes out in different ways. So, um, yeah, it's been a good, it's been a, it's been a good background. 
Excellent stuff. Snowdonia Killings, if it does uh, go into production, how involved would you want to be in that? Because you, of all people, will know just how time-consuming uh, making a, a TV series is. Yeah, they've asked me to be the exec, an exec producer on it and then a consultant, so... Um, they've asked me to be very much in in sort of involved with that, um, and possibly write scripts. Although I did say I'm not sure when <laughs> when yes. I'm to write the script. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you know I just have to be careful because I have a very very clear idea of what it looks like. I've already filmed it in my head, right. and I'm assuming it won't look anything like how they envisage it. So I just have to be sort of uh, a little bit hands off uh, when it comes to it. Excellent. What's coming next? Now, you already mentioned we've got the Chirk Castle Killings coming in June, which is a D.I. Ruth Hunter. Uh, we've mm-hmm. got two more of uh, the uh, Laura Hart uh, books coming eventually yeah. with the slow pace of traditional publishing. What else is coming from you, Simon? I think I think that's going to keep me going, I think. <laughs> I have been asked to write a one-off thriller, but I, as my agent said, when are you going to do that? And I said, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet. So, um, so yeah, there'll be another two or three um, Ruth Hunters this year. Um, and The Dark Tide comes out in May. The next one's called In Too Deep, which will be January of next year. And then six months later, there'll be Anglesey 3. So that that's that's plenty to be getting on with so, that is um, that is plenty i, I realized that was quite a rude question it's not no, like no. you're it's not like you're a <laughs> a, a slug about you know yeah exactly you come on pull your finger out simon um simon McLeaf, thank you so much for speaking to us today this is thank just you. astonishing we wish you every every best uh luck with uh, future projects and hope to speak to you again soon great to see you thanks a lot do you know what? I think we found a challenger for our uh, Shannon Mayer, most books written in a year. It's Simon amazing, has written, yeah. was it 12 books in a year? Uh, that's, that's, uh, there was, yeah, something like that. Unbelievable. It's, it's, I mean, when you actually start losing count, you've got to ask questions, haven't you? You know, it's, well, it's, it's just phenomenal, phenomenal. I remember when we asked Shannon at the very beginning of the, uh, of the podcast and, and, and she couldn't quite remember the number that she had written, which is a <laughs> phenomenal place to be as a writer. Because let's be honest, most of us are trying to work out what percentage we are through our only book that we're <laughs> writing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so much, so much rich information that Simon shared with us. One of the things that really jumped out for me, though, was his idea of writing fast. I really mm-hmm. like that concept because we've always talked about writing. We never talk about writing slow as if it were like, you know, something you do as a meditation, but writing fast. It, it's a kind of an intention that you're not just going to sit down to write. You're going to write fast. And I think what might be going on there, I think part of Simon's secret source is by writing fast, you're also saying to yourself, I am not going to get held up by roadblocks. I am not going to edit as I go along. I'm not going to dwell on something. I'm not going to go off and do a ton of research whilst writing fast about getting the words down as quickly as humanely possible or humanly possible, or mainly humanely as well. <laughs> yes, humanely, yes. 3,000 3, <laughs> plus words a day. Phenomenal. I mean, cons- if that's consistent, that is an absolutely incredible output. I mean, I could tell you were kind of blown away by that mark in the interview as well. Yes. Well, you know, I'm halfway through one of my novels at the moment and I'm sort of 1,500 words a day on that uh and it's um yeah uh, i 
I'm in awe of it. You know, I um, finally you like this. There's a, there's a kind of musical analogy as well. I was listening to an interview with um, Neil Finn. You know, from Crowded House. Oh, I love songwriter. Neil Finn. He's one of and my favourite yeah, songwriters. He's. I mean, I think Paul McCartney rates him as one of the best songwriters around at the moment. Yeah, and, and he was talking about a thing he calls called pushing through the wall. And he's, he was saying that, you know, he's trying to write music, he's trying to get songs together and he gets to a wall, but he keeps pushing, he keeps pushing. And that's been very much in my mind at the moment, because I think when I, because I'm a, like I said, I'm a roughly the halfway point of this draft at the moment. And it would be very easy to say, well, I've done 500 words, let's go away, have a cup of tea and, and we'll come back to it later kind of thing. But mm. if I keep pushing, if I keep, I've got the time to do it. You know, if I keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, eventually you get, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad I, I stayed with this. Here we go. We're rocking, we're rolling, you know, boom, boom, boom. So, yeah, I think, um, and I think Simon knows that. I think Simon, because he's he's worked in TV for so long, you don't have that luxury of sitting on, you know, if you're writing for EastEnders, which he has done, you can't deliver. You can't say, well, yeah. give me a couple of days, you know, it's <laughs> like, no, we're all on set waiting for you. Come and get a, get a crack on. So uh, I think that's, you know, work writing, and I think I've said this before as well, you know, uh, I, I like, you know, write like you're on the set and the whole cast and crew is waiting for you. Write like you're rewriting. Yeah. Well, you've been there, haven't you? I mean, you know what the pressure yeah. of, is like of having to pop out. I remember you said you had to pop out one lunchtime, <laughs> yeah. find yourself a corner of a pub and rewrite some scripts for, yep. for the, yep. for be, that will be read in the afternoon. So I think, I think, I think this is really worth repeating because we've seen this a lot in the podcast over the, over the five plus years we've been doing it that people who have worked in the TV and film industry and journalists as well, again, they're all part of the same group. They're all deadline driven. And they've learned the discipline so much that when they make that step across to the completely unaccountability of an indie author, for example, with no, nobody telling you, you've got to, Mm. you've got to deliver on this day. It's kind of ingrained in them that that's just what they do. And I think for everyone else who's struggling with this, we have to create those deadlines, you have to create those accountabilities or worst case scenario, go and get a job as a journalist or learn to write for film and TV so that we, we get that discipline because that's what it is. It's when I, when I left the company that I worked for, for a number of years in the nineties, I got ingrained of getting to work at nine o'clock and and leaving, you know, whenever, when the work was done. Mm. And I found as soon as I went, um, and I started my own business and I worked from home for myself, by myself for a number of years, I still got to my desk at nine o'clock every morning and I still was very kind of, this is family time, this is work time. And I was very rigid about that. And I've done that for the last 20 plus years, Martin. That's been 20, 24 years. I can't believe it that I've been working from home. And I still showed up this morning at nine o'clock and I will still work through until, you know, dinner time. And I think had I not gone to the company, I maybe wouldn't have had that discipline of the work day. And it's helped me hugely to focus on things rather than kind of break things up and just, you know, become very kind of laissez-faire about it. It's, it's funny you say that because I used to write on my commute into work. So yeah. I write, I start writing at 7.30 in the morning. Not that this is a competition. <laughs> so all the, time, I, the time yeah. the train's leaving the platform, you're exactly. sitting at home now. I'm sitting That's at home doing, yeah, in my dressing wow. gown. Uh, so you I start- your, did you have to get your family standing by the door and you got pushed past them to get a seat? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Get out. Get out. <laughs> Get over. Love it. Love it. <laughs> yeah, someone comes in and asks me for a ticket after about 45 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, and and it's weird because by 9:30 I'm kind of that first session is done. 
and then I go away and do admin and other things and then maybe come back for a second session, you know, later in the day. Which is amazing because a lot of people aren't even up at 9.30 if they're working mm. for themselves. I certainly know in yeah. the music world, a lot of people, yeah, like, yeah. They, <laughs> they don't get up until like late, you know, they've been jamming till four in the morning. But I think it's fascinating. So I think, I think everyone listening, okay, pay attention to what you're struggling with. You're struggling with deadlines. You're struggling with writing more words. Um, and then try to think about rules that you want to put in place for yourself that you're going to try and stick to. Uh, oh, you know what? We do all this stuff in the academy, folks. If you like, honestly, I talk about this. I talk about this every month about creating discipline, creating habit. If you need this, come and join the academy because we go so deep on this. But it's it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's it's the bit that everyone misses because we all think, oh, I need to be a better writer. I'll pick up Stephen King's book or I'll listen to the podcast. Maybe I'll, I'll learn new new tricks about how to be a better you know better character developer or better dialogue but the bit the big elephant in the room that no one really talks about is how do you become a better writer through habits discipline structure deadlines all the things that are baked into a, a, an author who is you know has basically a commitment to a publisher. We get that for free when we become, and I think that's why so many people desperately want to get signed by a major publisher because they get, they get the accountability. Like you're not going to miss that. When we got booked for, I dare say, I haven't said it for a few years, but Glastonbury, my God, did we have have a deadline to finish? I mean, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. When we got, you stop me if I've said this before, Mark, but when we got booked for Glastonbury, we had half the album written. And those six tracks had taken us three years. And when we got booked, we had three months to complete the album because one, we had to kind of do an hour set. We only had half an hour of music. In those three months, not only did we finish the other half of the album instead of it taking three years, we we got a band together. We got the CD manufactured and printed, okay, going back a few years. Um, but three months because of a blooming deadline and it was, it was not going to be movable. And I just... We can become superhuman, superhumans when we have a deadline. It's it's incredible. Yeah, no, it's it's very often the way. And by the way, if anyone's playing a podcast bingo, uh, just remember to tick off Glastonbury on your card. Um, <laughs> there, should yeah, be, we- there should be a scorecard for, for the best electronic podcast, a bingo yeah, card yeah. with just the word Glastonbury written on it. That's it. That's <laughs> bingo, the only bingo else? game. No, it's, it's also another music analogy is very often the hit single is the last thing the band records in the studio. It's the thing they go, right, we've done all the stuff that we've prepared months for. I've got this idea for a song. And you go and you read about bands and the hit single, and it's so often you hear it's the last thing they did in the studio because they were like, yeah, all the pressure's off. We're just going to do this now. Yeah, the throwaway kind of track almost. And this is what Simon and a lot of screenwriters and TV writers and journalists, they do away with all the preciousness. They they put away the preciousness. They're just like, we're just going to do this. We're going to get this down. We're going to get it down. And then we can finesse it later. You can mix it in the studio. You can rewrite and edit later on. But just get the bloody thing down on paper and mm. then worry about the, the, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's later on. Yeah, which is all about finish that first draft as quickly yeah, as possible yeah, yeah, yeah. and don't stop and edit yeah. and don't overthink and don't do too much research. 
So all the things we've been mentioning on this podcast for years. All the mistakes I've been making this week. All the mistakes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, one other thing that I, I loved, uh, and again, talking about making the most of your time, the fact that, you know, here's Simon, who's incredibly successful author, and yet he still had to kind of work around this teaching job that he had, and he would find, mm. he would write, you know, before school, and he taught, he talked about writing in lunch breaks. He would grab and snatch that time. And I think that's, you know, I remember, I remember somebody once emailing us saying, I sit, I think it was Josh Atkinson actually, he said, I sit, when I sit waiting for my, to pick up my kids at school, I sit there for 10 minutes and I bring out my notebook or I bring out my laptop and I just write for 10 minutes. It's like people who say they haven't got the time to write, we all have the time to write. It's just, we don't recognize the opportunities and, you know, the moments where we can snatch 10 minutes here. And it's not ideal, obviously. We all want to sit down and be able to, like, wistfully look out the window for four hours. But, you know, if you can get 10, 20 minutes even a day, that's your 200 words right there, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I used to, I used to, I wrote my first play on the night shift at Wartstones in Wimbledon when I was sat. I'm supposed to be working. There's no one there. It's eight o'clock at night. There's no one, there's no one upstairs. You know, you get one person come in and then that's it and they're out. And I would sit there and write my play on, on the, you know, the late shift. Or, you know, when I was a sales rep, I would, I would write my lunch break. I'd pull over into laybys and write there. And then when I was taking trains, I'd write in my commute. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, the gingerbread episode, we did an episode, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this, where it was um, a prize for single parents who have written a, a novel. And I remember a couple of them saying you know, one was writing on their phone on the bus, you know, writing a novel on the phone. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey was written on the Blackberry. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> find the time. If if you if you really, really want this, if you really, really want, don't make yourself ill. Don't, you know, if this, I don't, I don't want anyone driving themselves nuts with this. But if you really want this, look for those little opportunities where you can get some words down. Yeah. Question mark. Was Fifty Shades of Drake Grey written on a Blackberry? Is that why it turned out to be so juicy? Oh, dad joke. Dad joke. (laughs) Sorry. Couldn't help it. Okay. uh, Moving swiftly on. I saw our listener clown just plummet, like real-time data. Absolutely plummet. Now I know how my kids feel. <laughs> oh, bad. You can't save it all for your kids, though, can you? Surely not. Surely not. Anyway, um, paperbacks. Another interesting thing Simon brought up. He read some marks from. Carry on. Uh, <laughs> I'll just keep talking. Seventy um, percent, um, and Simon referenced that seventy percent of people still buying paperbacks, and I found that really fascinating. And I know that the statistic probably fluctuates a lot, and it probably depends on countries and different types of readers, but. It got me thinking, so many things in our world have turned completely digital. You know, we've got, you know, movies are, are, are digitalized now, you know, we've got with Netflix and streaming music and like, you know, the percentage of people who are actually consuming music on a daily basis that isn't on CD tape, even though tape's having a bit of a comeback and vinyl yeah. are quite tiny compared to everyone else who subscribes to Spotify and Google music, whatever it might be, YouTube. So music gone that way as well. And so many things are going the way of digital, but it's really interesting, isn't it? That the the good old book, the physical hard copy book is still seems to be standing its ground despite this incredible advent of the Kindle. Do you you know why? Do you know why? They're gorgeous. That's why. They are gorgeous. This is, um, and we're hoping to get V Schwab on the show soon. We can fix a date. She's very busy. I just, this is her new book, Galant. I just picked this up because it's 
gorgeous. I mean, it's, I mean, look at it. Look at that. When it's signed by the author, look at those end papers. I mean, this is for oh. people on YouTube, you know, so, but yeah, beautiful like end papers. And then, you know, oh. the, it's, yeah, look at it. What I mean, do you call that? What do you call that, Mark, on the, I've always wondered what the outside of the book, the pages are called <clears> on the, on well, the is, there a, is there a technical term? Yeah, sprayed edges is just sprayed what Sprayed edges, love yeah. it. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, geeking yeah. out now. Yeah, sprayed edges. Sprayed Which, edges. Um, it turns out might be environmentally a bad idea. Oh. It, <laughs> or it's, okay. it's, it's one of those things that, the the uh, it, it might be um you I think you'll be seeing seeing fewer of these because it's quite expensive to do as well and price of price okay. of books are going to go up. That is whilst we're on this, I've got a really important question to ask, which on, I've never on. had an answer to, and I think there are millions of people out in the world that also want to know this, even though they realise they don't want to, they don't need to know it in their life. But you probably know this, Mark. When I was younger, and I used to go into bookshops. I used to see these books that instead of them having like a nice flush ending, like our book here, Back to Reality. It would be all kind of rippled and it looked like the machine had messed up. And I thought, I thought that these were like rejects, like the, the printing press had messed up and it didn't get a nice clean. But somebody the other day mentioned to me something about, no, no, that's actually a stylistic thing. Is that the case? It's Do you know what it's you- called? I don't know what it's called, but you used to see it a lot on books from North America. It's just one of those things that I see them in the all, states. All, no, but they're all all over here. They're everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. "What's going on? Like, what's happening with the printing presses?" It it, do, it doesn't happen here. And you know oh. what? I don't. I don't know. I'll have to ask a friend okay. in production about that. I'm uh, curious as to what it's called <laughs> and why they do it. Yeah. Because it looks like the machines, but I think it's actually a stylistic thing. I think it's a choice that the publisher makes over here and and there's a lot of books that have that and it's it's always i've always so if anyone else knows like drop us a note because i'm curious yeah let's know curious let's know but um yeah no uh, back to the your point um books are gorgeous they're they're beautiful objects you know you go to things like uh yauk the ya literary convention and you'll see people descend on tables they see something like this and they'll they'll you know the v schwab and they'll just pick it up without they go oh yeah yeah pretty object i'll have that um so that, there's there's that. Whereas CDs, horrible plastic cases. I mean vinyl. Yeah. I mean look. I mean uh, vinyl's beautiful. Just, just the other day, I bought. I'm holding up for the camera. Pink Floyd's Pink Wish Floyd. You Were Here on vinyl. Pink Floyd, Mark. I thought you had all their stuff already. <laughs> I do. I've bought this about eight bloody times. But I realised the vinyl I, I had. I actually threw away the black bin bag when I first got it. Stupid idiot. So I've gone back and bought it. And in here, you know, you've got the album in there, and then there's postcards and all sorts of stuff in there as. As well and yeah you know it's it's a collectible it's, uh, right yeah it is, it is. I, and you're right a c if you open a cd up and actually to be honest even vinyl you might sit with the vinyl and you might look at the picture and you might read the lyrics i know everyone used to do that in the 80s and mm. 90s but eventually you just listen to the music you know you don't look at the vi- you don't look at the vinyl or the seat the inlay in the cd for like oh 20 hours. Well, maybe you do, Mark, but you're, I a, did. you're a pink Floyd geek. <laughs> but anyway, the book, I think this is what it is. I think the book is something that we hold and mm. and we it's it's part of the experience of well, we're, the book is with us the entire duration of reading the story. And so there's, I think there's something physical that happens, like you become connected in the same way that once you've had that journey with the book and it was a beautiful journey, you feel in some way that it's become a part of your life. And that's why people put their books on bookshelves, even after they've read them. And they don't just give them to the thrift store or they they give them away. 
it becomes a part, almost like a little time capsule of I dedicated 20 hours of my life or five hours or 50 hours, depending on how big the book is, of my life to this beautiful piece of work. And then it becomes a thing that you can pick up in the future and reconnect with. I think there's something going on there. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, again, it's horses for courses. There are people out there devoted to their Kindle device, their Kobo device, whatever they've got, or they might read on their phone or their iPad, and it's convenient for them. Uh, maybe, you know, I know people who can't read hardcovers because they might have like, arthritis or vision yeah, issues or what true. have you. You know, the the ebook has made books more accessible than ever before, which is a wonderful thing. But there is that. We love to collect. We love beautiful objects. Uh, this survey that I'm doing, I'm, you know, so far it's not the survey isn't finished yet, but overwhelmingly people are reading more of my books in paperback than in ebook. Funny mm. enough, you know. So it's mm. um, yeah, uh, and maybe that's because of Harry's covers. You know, the cover art is gorgeous. It's a beautiful thing to to own. So um. So, yeah, it's, there's so uh, many unknowns, aren't there? It's brilliant, yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. there's other things as well. You know, like, I mean, there's some authors that just put out ebooks. I mean, we know yeah. from personal experience, yeah, yeah, yeah. like if you put out a and do very well, yeah, well, absolutely. And it, and it's hard sometimes to you know doing physical a physical book a lot more a lot more work a lot more extra knowledge you've got to pick yeah. up as an author yeah. to put out there. So there's all those things to consider as well. But yeah, we shall continue to discuss. But what tell us what you if you're a book lover physical book lover or if you're a dedicated ebook lover like why do you choose one or the other or if you're in the middle why you know what do you prefer i'd love to hear more about people's experiences because i think you know i think the ebook needs a bit of a um, support team behind it as well to kind of balance things out because there's a lot to be said i mean at least just the environmental side of things i mean or or is oh, it yeah. who knows I mean, well i mean i was um I was at EasterCon over Easter, and they had a panel there of publishers uh, from small presses to that um, uh, Marcus Gibbs from uh, Golantz. And they all said the same thing. Paper in the UK, much more expensive. Uh, there's still a driver shortage here. They're having trouble booking slots at printers. Books, physical books, they're going to go up. They're going to be more expensive. Uh, mm. Certainly by Christmas, you're going to see a rise uh, in the cost of books. And, um, you know, so I think the ebook, you know, we've had this ongoing debate about the 99p, the 299, the 599 ebook or whatever, uh, is going to look like a, an absolute bloody bargain compared to physical books. So, you know, there's that as well. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how costing and prices develops over the, over the next few months. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about as well, three days, uh, three hours a day, no, five hours a day of writing at 3,000 words. That's that's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's a big chunk out of your day. Yeah. It and is. Qu quite exhausting as well. You know, I've got to get up every sort of hour or so and, you know, get my bum off uh, the chair and move about. But, you know, that's the advantage of being a full-time author. I mean, my day is also taken up with podcast stuff and academy stuff and other projects that I'm working on as well. So, um, but that's the dream, isn't it? Isn't it for all it the writers out there? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. I'm kind of curious as to what people average. I mean, the 200 words a day challenge, I think you have to start there to get to 3K a day if, you, if, if that's what your goal is. Work your way up. Don't try and do it from day one because you'll probably crash and burn after a week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I think that's, and obviously Simon loves to do it, but it's the way it's just for him, it's just a, it's just something he does. It doesn't, didn't, you know, it didn't really kind of like just 
that's what I do. It's just part of my life. And when it's so baked into the system, I absolutely love that, you know, in terms of how he, how he works and his work ethics, obviously phenomenal because it's, it's producing an incredible number of books. The thing we're hearing again and again is particularly if you're an indie, if you want success, if, if you want to do well, you have to write a series and you have to write them quickly. And it's not to say you churn them out without any thought, but you do have, you know, there are readers out there who will expect three, four, five books a year. And if you're knocking out five books a year and they're of a quality, which Simon's clearly are, the reviews for his books are amazing, uh, then you've got a winner. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it is, a, it's not a surefire route to success, but the number of authors I've interviewed on this podcast that have done that and are, you know, doing very well. Thank you very much. Mm, absolutely. Let's talk about starting with a twist because that was a really interesting thing, Simon. Bolton. I didn't see that coming. Hey, I'm here all week. See, you're not the only one who could do dad jokes. <laughs> Slammed it right back into my court. Down the line, that one was perfect. Hey, Brilliant. love it. Yeah, that's, 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 um, that's terrific. Funny enough, I've interviewed um, an author called Christopher D. Abbott, who will be coming on probably in a couple of months, who writes Sherlock Holmes novels. Uh, and he talks about the, me the mechanics of having that twist, of knowing who it is and working back from that, of having the solution to the puzzle and then working back from that and then as Simon said, covering your tracks to make sure, you know, putting some red herrings down and just uh, – and there is an act that – because um, it's uh, – it's 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 really hard to do, really, really. I mean, when you when you're uh, for um, for my third book, Ghost of Ivy Barn, there is a traitor in their midst, and I had a choice. Uh, my choice was: do I have a big reveal at the end, and then have the reader go, "Oh wow, I never saw that coming," or do I do a Columbo and just we know who they are from the start? So I went with the latter. Just as a personal, because I wanted to get inside the, you know, the, the traitor's head as well. So you know who it is from the start. But just the the idea of tackling that kind of keeping it under wraps and you know covering up uh, any any clues and red herrings and stuff like that. It is. It sounds like a real challenge. But if you have that kind of mind, I think the people who sort of do these maybe love crosswords and puzzles and well and have that kind. And I don't kind of have that mind. Um, I think you know that's that can that can be hugely satisfying. It's like like um, solving a great puzzle, doing a Rubik's cube or something like that, where everything just clicks nicely into place. That's that's. I think if if that's your skill and if that's what you love as a reader, that's immensely satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. It's it's almost a form of reverse engineering. There almost has to be that kind of slightly engineering mind within the storytelling world to kind of mm. plot backwards. But it's a lot easier doing it back to front, literally, starting at the back. <laughs> it's a bit like we always talk about this when you're actually talking about going somewhere on a destination, a journey. If you know your end first, it's much easier to work backwards, plan yeah. your journey to that place rather than you go forwards and you don't know where you're heading, then you've got no end point to, 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 to work around. Yeah. I mean, I don't write novels with a twist necessarily, but I do like to know where I'm going now. I yeah. definitely have. I can't really start anything until I know what the ending is. Well, and that's what a twist gives you as, a, as an author. It gives you a place to head towards, even if the twist isn't at the very end of the book. I mean, if you put a twist at the end of like the first act, for example, um, 
that at least gives you somewhere to head towards, and then you can twist, you can create additional twists. I, I mean, let's way. let's sort of define what a twist is because it's it's a reversal. It's it's something that you 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 know a character walks into a room and they're expecting something to happen, and the opposite of that happens. I mean, to be honest, every time you write a chapter, every time you write a scene or a story beat, there kind of has to be a twist in every one of those. Uh, I, I mean, funnily enough. It's, it's not out yet, but the Unwelcome, the film that I wrote, everyone commented on a twist in that story, which I hadn't intended. I just thought, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to do the usual thing here. I'm going to do something different when mm. I was writing it. And, you know, John and I were, were really happy with it, and it's a, re- it's a reversal. It's not the sort of thing you normally see. We, we're subverting a, a horror trope, and we're having fun with it. But the feedback we got from the studio, Warner Brothers were like, oh, we love the twist. <laughs> Oh yeah, I suppose it is a twist. Yeah, you know, so it hadn't kind of occurred to me, but but that's just the way, you know. There's one thing where you talk about a crime novel where everything, where the whole thing kind of clicks into place, but those little micro twists, those little reversals, those little things that where you go in and, and it's like you expect the scene to to play out this way, and if you do that in every scene, your story becomes predictable. And I'd like to. You know, when I, when I when I go into a scene, I'm thinking, okay, it can go this way, this way, this way. What's the that's the obvious choice? Let's go. What's the opposite of that? Maybe that's a bit too crazy. Let's dial it down a bit. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then you start, uh, you know, getting a really interesting story. So I think we talk about twists. I think books should be full of them. Mm. But I th- obviously, what Simon's talking about is that that bigger thing where that that sixth sense thing where you go oh my gosh it was right in front of me all the time totally yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. or the Sarah Pinbra one again if you've seen behind your eyes right that kind of thing it's it's brilliant no and very you know very I think I think in some ways it's uh you admire the author for having done it because if they've if they've literally been able to pull pull the wool over your eyes and as Simon says, cover your tracks. Yeah. In some ways, you know, if it's a crime novel, the author has to cover their tracks as well as their antagonist covers their tracks, right? I mean, that's... Well, my, my number one tip for this is to, uh, and I have had to do this, um, write the story just on a page. If, you, if you're in the middle of a draft or you get to the end of a draft and it doesn't quite make sense, just take a page and write the story out from the antagonist's point of view. Mm. Okay, so write it from their point of view and make sure they make one crucial mistake. That That's the thing that gets them caught out. Because this was, I was watching um, a documentary on the Yorkshire Ripper, uh, Peter Sutcliffe, and he was always, the, the police were in complete disarray. They couldn't pin him down. But the thing that got him caught was, and he was quite lazy. He wasn't you know he wasn't some genius it was mainly because they were in they were in disarray but it was what he did was one of his victims uh had a i think it was had a 5 pound note um that had come from his wage slip because you know people were paid in cash in a little brown envelope and he was worried they could trace it back and it was his efforts to get that money back that eventually people started tying him to the murders so it was it was that one little mistake that they made. So if you're if you're looking to plot this out, um, if you're writing this kind of twisty turny crime thriller, or you're just you're just trying to figure out the story from the protagonist's point of view, take the time to plot out the story from their you know what's their intent. They must have a clear goal, 
uh, and then let them make one little mistake, the tiniest mistake, and that's the thing that gets them caught. Hmm. And that can be your twist. Brilliant. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you, Simon, for incredible insights and, uh, and your interview. We very much look forward to catching up, as you say, Mark, with, uh, with how Simon's uh, future writing goes as well. Um, what's happening on social media here? It's been a busy week this week on social media. So much good news. And people are sending us their favourite bookshops as well. So keep sending those in. We love hearing about those. But uh, Kate Baker on the Academy, uh, she said, my short story has been picked as editor's story of the week over on Fairlight Books. Marvellous. A small tipple later, me thinks. Uh, So it's a story called The Projectionist and it's a story about family and heritage. Uh, Congratulations on that, Kate. Kate Kate is just one of the most committed academates we have on the academy and uh, she's working so hard she's got this amazing book that i've had the pleasure of reading and giving feedback on and she's now getting feedback from other academates and it's gonna be a smash i've got a really really good feeling about it so and kate is one of those people pushes through the wall keeps writing doing all the right things so huge congrats on that kate uh jeff white uh, over on the bxp group on facebook and longtime patron um he's just done uh, he's put new covers on his fantasy novels uh and the first one in the series is the swordsman's lament and he did a signing he popped into a shop called bordeaux in st mary's which is on the silly isles which is where he lives and he went in there and i think it's his first signing that he's done some amazing photos of him signing his books there so congrats uh for that jeff uh huge congrats um we had now the 200 words a day challenge one of the people who regularly daily puts their words up is at inkborn blade on twitter and inkborn got in touch and said does getting married this saturday count as a reasonable excuse to break my 200 words a day streak <laughs> now what do you think mr d i would say I, no i frankly. personally <laughs> uh yeah i think i think the thing is okay i mean big day big day the point of the 200 word challenge is it's it's 10 minutes so is there the possibility <laughs> Can't believe you're doing this <laughs> i do jest but we've heard crazier things haven't we people in hospital doing their 200 words yeah someone um uh, speaking their 200 words at like five to midnight well that's not as crazy as i guess doing it on your marriage day of marriage but um maybe you could weave it in if you if you're like me and you're working on your speech the morning of your wedding, that kind of counts as 200 words. So I'd say let's yeah. let's compromise. If you're writing, if you're editing and writing a speech, if you're doing 10 to 15 minutes of that, who doesn't do that on the morning of their wedding? Exactly. Then, there, yeah, I think that's fair enough. You just, you just have to get creative. Get creative yeah. about how those 200 words come about. Because there's really and, and con- no rules. And congratulations, by the way. And absolutely. <laughs> we send you all of our... And, and and long long may your uh, relationship thrive within your writing as well because we you know we, we we talk about this like writing is a solitary business and all I can say is um, whoever uh, whoever you fall in love with when you do if you go out dating always really go large on the writing bit up front set the expectation <laughs> before the first coffee date or even better. Find someone that loves to write as well, and then you can both do your writing together next to each other in silence and have a long, happy marriage.
Brilliant. So congratulations. So, so absolutely. Yeah. Um, Natalie Perry uh, on the VXP team, um, she said, after listening to our episode with Tim Sullivan, which was a few episodes ago, and I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, Tim, uh, like uh, Simon, is uh, a TV and film writer, um, and he's got some great tips as well, so do check that episode out. Natalie said, after listening to the Tim Sullivan episode, she watched his film, the, the film that he wrote, My Little Pony, A New Generation with the Family. Okay. Uh, Natalie says, everyone was a little surprised at my suggestion on movie night, but every single member of the family loved it. Adults and mini peeps, highly recommended. Now, you may recall Tim said that, you know, he got this gig quite late in the day writing the My Little Pony movie, but he took it as an opportunity to put some nice subversive messages in there as well. So, yeah, do check it out. Do check it out. It's out there on streaming now. And on the Academy, Michael Kelly uh, said The Devil's Calling, the sequel to his book, The Lost Theory, is through copy edit and will be released in October. And basically said to Academates, if they want an arc, he's got some, uh, you know, t- uh, available for Academy members. This is amazing. We're getting members of the Academy, they're publishing books, they're, they're, it's, it's all happening. It's all yeah, so sharing. Good. It's brilliant. And cra- congratulations. And an arc for anyone who's never heard that term before. I know a lot of people might not have done it, means advanced reader's copy. Does indeed. Uh, on the bookshops front, people sending us their uh, favourite bookshops. So we've got Gavin Ralph, who uh, he says, I'm not sure. Uh, he says, my favourite is Waterstones Piccadilly. Now, you'd be sitting there going, well, oh, I've been Waterstones there. Piccadilly, it's yeah. a big shop. Does big. it need a plug? But G- Gavin is from New Zealand. So, you know, to be fair, he's come all the way from uh, Kiwiland. And he said, the first time I went in, it blew my mind and continues to be a joy every time I go. It's just massive. I've been to so many fantastic author events there, either hosted downstairs or next door at St. James Piccadilly. Uh, and he says, at the other end of the scale, a bit more local, one of my faves in New Zealand include Independence Unity Books, the Time Out Bookstore, both in Auckland and Bruce McKenzie booksellers in Palmerston North. Such a great range and variety packed into uh, 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 those stores. So we'll put links in the show notes to know that those if you're in, near Auckland in New Zealand, do check those out. And Tanya Scott said, are we allowed secondhand bookshops? Yes, Of course. Are, uh, in which case, it's the best books best bookshop on earth Leakey's in Inverness and Jackie Kirkham chimed in as well she said I love Leakey's too it's my second favourite second hand bookshop uh, she's raved about barter books in Annick in the old railway station and I've seen photos of this it looks absolutely beautiful the atmosphere of Leakey's but with added excellent food in the cafe so we'll put links to those in the show notes as well folks send us your favourite bookshops second hand first hand big and small we love them all. all that Brilliant fun. stuff. That absolutely <laughs> rhymes. I love it. I love it. Um, and everyone, if you have had a great writing week, if you've got something coming up which is really exciting and you want to share it with the world, if you want to do a dream declaration, we haven't mentioned that in a few months, Mark, a dream declaration, mm-hmm. which is where you tell us what you're going to do, talking about accountability, um, send us your dream declaration and we will hold you to it on this podcast. Maybe it's finishing yep. your Goes book. Goes in the diary. Maybe, maybe it's starting your book. Um, but uh, let us know. Drop us an email. Uh, you can go along to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the contact us. And whilst you're there, click on the newsletter button and put your email address in there as well. And we will add you to our weekly newsletter where we will tell you what we are recording and all the amazing things you're going to learn from this week's episode. And if you subscribe to the newsletter, we haven't mentioned this in a very, very long time, but I was reminded of it today. You get free ebook. 
The Vault of Gold, which is interviews from our first year of the podcast with some amazing authors, completely free, transcripts of the interviews, uh, Joanne Harris, Joe Hill, Sarah Pimbra, all with amazing, astonishing advice. It's a great little digest of our first year and just the most amazing advice. So, yeah, subscribe, rate, review, give us a rating, tell all your friends, go to your writers group, tell us, tell them about us, uh, and then drop us a line on social media. Uh, Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Fantastic, folks. And if you'd like to join us on the 200 Word Challenge, it's 200wordchallenge.com. It's our free challenge to get you the writing habit of a lifetime. And then if you're looking to level up, obviously, the place to be is the bestseller academy almost rhymes doesn't it mark <laughs> just got mark as he was drinking some water Sorry. you almost you just re- <laughs> you, you, you almost completely wrecked all of that incredible equipment you've got in front I of thought, you i thought you were going to go from dad jokes to dad rapping there and then i'm afraid we'd have to finish the podcast dad rapping. okay yeah, i make a rapping. promise to everyone out there if ever i get to dad rapping our editors you're allowed to just completely cut me off <laughs> silence me out and mark can finish the show i can promise you that will probably never happen but then you just never know with this podcast you just never know um anyway have a fantastic writing week Mrs. gather Stone. all around and come and see join us in the bestseller academy <laughs> sorry sorry i apologize oh my gosh we're breaking new ground today aren't we this is amazing we're stuff breaking something <sighs> <laughs> anyway listen have a fantastic week we hope we've inspired you this week we hope our, our guest simon has inspired you to get writing and get prolific right fast folks get it done get your book out there and then share your successes with us um, we love you all thank you so much for being with us on this journey and until next week it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from dj master blaster mark stay um yeah i, I can't do it i used to love i used to love hip-hop and rap when you know i was younger but it really? just yeah 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 oh, oh yeah, yeah grandmaster flash and the furious five okay here's White the thing light. okay <laughs> okay, any, if anyone wants to write a bestseller experiment rap, if it's really good, maybe one of us <laughs> will attempt it on the show. I'm just putting it out there. Anyway, it's definitely a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye! Bye! Bye.